Good morning, welcome again. We'll keep going in 1 Samuel, pick up where Mark left off. 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 17. We'll read at the end of the chapter, 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's ask for God's help. Father, help us to understand this story uh, with many difficult things in it for us to understand. Uh, we want to see clearly in it your character, your goodness, uh, your unchanging nature. Uh, Lord, we need help. Most of all, we need to see Jesus, our great King. We ask for your help in his name. Amen. So right now our church is in the middle of training new elders and deacons, new officers, and one of the things that we have been talking about quite a bit is the character of God's leaders in His church. Uh, when the New Testament talks about who's qualified to lead over the church, uh, it almost entirely talks about their character. 
talks about their spiritual and their relational maturity. Not hardly at all with their skills or with their talents and not at all about their success in the world. The Apostle Paul, you guys don't remember this from a few months ago, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in his first letter to him, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Uh, Pastor Timothy, not me, the original Pastor Timothy, uh, was not only supposed to work hard on teaching rightly and teaching well, but he was also supposed to work hard on his own spiritual integrity, his own character. Every couple months, it seems like there's some new headline about a famous pastor being exposed as abusive or greedy or licentious. Many of us have personally experienced the great shock and pain of seeing someone that used to be a spiritual mentor to us later exposed as a fraud. Our chapter today shows us the final downfall of King Saul, and it all revolves around his character. Saul's not going to disappear entirely from the story for some time, but this is kind of uh, this seals the deal, so to speak, for Saul, for something that we've been seeing going on for a while. His burnout revolves around his refusal to listen to God's voice. I don't know if you noticed, but over and over in this chapter, we keep hearing about the importance of listening to God's voice, of hearing His word, of obeying His commands. We'll see that to some extent, this is a story about how all of us need to obey God's commands, God's concern for obedience in us, uh, no matter how hard those commands might be or how difficult they might be for us to understand. Uh, But ultimately, like we've been seeing in this whole story, we need to remember again that this is a story ultimately about how we need a king who's not like Saul. Uh, It's ultimately about how we need a king who will obey God's commands. Uh, So I I think this story basically comes in three pieces, three acts. The first one I've called partial obedience. Verses 1 to 9, we see some partial obedience. Uh, Look at verse 1 there of chapter 15. You can see there that we're being reminded, like we've been seeing all through this narrative in Samuel, we've been, we're being reminded that God's word is supposed to rule over God's king. The prophet Samuel comes to Saul and says, now listen. Listen. It literally says, listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. In verse 2, you see that God frames his message for Saul in terms of him being the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, that means literally Yahweh, that's God's name, Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of armies. It's a way of describing God not only as the one who rules over earthly armies and nations, God raises them up and tears them down whenever he wants and however he wants, uh, but ultimately it's a title that describes God as the one who rules over spiritual armies, spiritual armies of angels and even of demons and of gods and goddesses. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, the real conflict in the universe is an invisible one. Paul says in Ephesians uh, that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against cosmic forces that we can't see. In the Bible, you see that earthly nations, earthly kingdoms, are often really just pawns in a much larger cosmic rebellion 
of spiritual beings against God's rule. And so then now, Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of hosts, comes to Saul and says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The Lord of armies is now going to fulfill an old promise of his. A couple of hundred of years earlier, right after Israel had come up out of Egypt, they were just slaves. God freed them through Moses. Uh, Right after they came out, right after they went through the Red Sea, a nomadic group of raiders called the Amalekites ambushed them. Even though they were very weary, they were beleaguered, they were very vulnerable. You read about that in Exodus 17. They do it again to the Israelites as they're wandering around in the wilderness a little while later. And so just before the next generation is going to enter the promised land, God tells them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, He says, don't forget what the Amalekites did to you. Don't forget how viciously they oppressed you. And then God tells them there in Deuteronomy, He says, they did this because they don't fear me. When they were attacking you, they were really attacking me. Later on, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah will say that anybody who harms God's people, anybody who touches them, Zechariah says, is touching the apple of my eye. So when you harm God's people, it's like you're poking God in the eye. And so God says, Amalek deserves his judgment. And the Israelites were supposed to carry it out for him one day in the future. So here in 1 Samuel, that day has arrived. In many ways, this dynamic of if you harm God's people, you're really harming God or you're attacking God, it's the same dynamic that you hear about in Jesus' famous parable about the sheep and the goats. Um, Those who mistreat Jesus' disciples are actually mistreating Jesus. Those who treat them well are actually treating Jesus well. Uh, But Jesus says in his words that those who mistreat his disciples They're really mistreating him. And so in his words, he says, they will face eternal punishment. Jesus talks about God's judgment more than anybody else in the Bible. That's what he means when he says in that parable, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Uh, The Bible is quite clear that Christians should be concerned to care for the poor and to help the poor as they can. But this parable is not about giving granola bars out to panhandlers. It's about how you treat God's people. The Amalekites continued to oppress and prey upon the Israelites. And now, after hundreds of years, God says, enough is enough. And so he says to Saul, go destroy them, destroy all of them. Just to make my point really clear, don't spare them. Uh, You could translate that word as don't show them any pity. Don't show them any pity. Passages like this, are a very hard pill for us to swallow, let alone for all kinds of people in the modern world today. We hear these kinds of things and we think, isn't this genocide? Isn't this barbaric? Babies and children, are you serious? How could this be something that God would actually call for? It seems so backwards. Uh, but there's a couple of things we need to remember. Um, the first thing I want you to remember is that in the Old Testament, 
holy war is extremely limited. It is extremely limited. It has to be specifically authorized by God himself. Kings, priests, popular referendums, none of those things could ever just decide that they were going to go out to war. Only God, speaking through his authorized prophets, could tell the Israelites when it was time to go start a new stage in the holy war. Most of the time, the holy war of the Old Testament was only inside the boundaries of the promised land of Canaan. Israel was never, ever allowed to just go out and fight because they felt like it. They were never, ever allowed just to go out to fight beyond the land of Canaan in order to make it bigger. That's why God gets so angry when David, later on in 2 Samuel, has a census. He wants to see how big his army can be. And God gets really mad about it. This is why. This is a very limited thing. Um, They are not allowed to fight any wars or battles outside of Canaan except when they are specifically authorized to do so. Uh, which is what's happening here in 1 Samuel, or when they are defending the promised land, and even then, God has to tell them when it's okay to do it. Under the new covenant, this is the stage we're living in now, since Jesus rose from the dead. Under the new covenant, physical holy war does not happen anymore. Paul says in Ephesians, our battle is not a physical battle. The ultimate war, as it always has been, still remains a spiritual war. Um, That doesn't mean there is never going to be physical war or physical violence. Uh, Israel's holy war is really a small foretaste of the final holy war that Jesus is going to carry out at his second coming. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's why it uses such violent, grisly imagery to describe what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming back and he's coming in total war. So that's the first thing you remember. It's very limited. God has to authorize it. It's very specific and its scope. Um, But more fundamentally than that, I want you to know and to remember that God is the absolute ruler over life and death. God is the absolute ruler over life and death. Not just in instances of Old Testament holy war, like what we're hearing about today, but all the time. All the time. Every single one of us is living right now. Every one of us, our hearts are beating and our brains are waving or whatever they do. They are only doing that by the permission of God, by the mercy of God. He takes our lives, just like he gives our lives, whenever and however he wants. Death is not just the way things are. Death is not the survival of the fittest. Death is not the circle of life. Death is not just passing away. Death is God's righteous judgment on the rebellious human family. Death is God's righteous judgment on the rebellious human family. The Bible is very clear that all people, all people, no matter their age, all people are sinful and deserving of God's judgment, even babies and children. I realize how harsh that sounds, but that's what the Bible clearly teaches and what the church has always clearly understood it to be saying. That we all have what, the, what we call original sin. Original sin doesn't mean like the first sin, like Adam's sin. Original sin means uh, something sinful within us from which all our other sins originate. It means that we are not fundamentally good. We are twisted by nature. Paul says in Ephesians that we are children of wrath. 
Nobody needs to teach a baby or a child to be selfish or greedy or violent. St. Augustine in his um, autobiography, The Confessions, he's, it's to a point in the book where he's reflecting on babies and children, and he talks about how uh, the only reason that babies uh, can't carry out more sin is because they're little and they're weak. And as soon as they get the capability to do it, then they like to do all kinds of sinful things. Um, we are disposed toward sin. That's what we mean by original sin. The Bible is clear that sin is not just what you do. It's not just actions that I take or things that I choose. Um, it's also what I don't do. It's not just um, being mean to my neighbors. It's also not loving them like I should. But even deeper than that, the Bible says that uh, sin beyond what you do or what you don't do, sin is ultimately what you are, or alternatively, what you are not. So if God wants to take the lives of an entire group of people, then he has every right to do so. In the end, God is going to take each and every one of our lives somehow anyway, and then all of us will face his holy judgment where nobody will be able to accuse God of doing something wrong. Nobody will owe, will, he will not owe anybody any kind of apology for anything that he's ever done. Death is his judgment on a sinful world, on a sinful people, and he can take our lives whenever he wants. He already is doing that. It's just a matter of when. So God tells Saul, wage holy war against the Amalekites. Now is the time that God wants to take their lives. He wants to take them all at once. God is deeply concerned by the oppression of the vulnerable, and the way that he does it is through judgment and destruction. A lot of people in our world are concerned about the poor and about oppression. Uh, the Bible is very concerned about those things. We should be too. Uh, but here, we see an instance of God's mercy towards oppression, towards the oppressed. He deals with it. He removes it. Just like with the Canaanites in the promised land, he gives the Amalekites a long time to change their ways. He's given them hundreds of years, but they've not changed. They're just getting worse. They've dug themselves deeper and deeper into violence and preying upon the weak. But even in the lead up to the battle, in verses 4 to 6, you see a glimmer of God's patience towards people. Saul tells the Canaanites to get out of the area because they were a people who had historically been helpful towards the Israelites. They'd been kind to them. And so God shows them mercy, even though in the grand theological scheme of things, they don't deserve it any more than the Amalekites do. This kind of thing is really hard for us to swallow, that we all deserve to die, that we're all sinful, but this is what makes grace, grace. This is what makes the gospel so shocking and so offensive, uh, that we actually don't deserve God's kindness, that what we do deserve is His judgment. So Saul is told to carry out God's judgment on the Amalekites. He shows a kind of mercy to the Kenites. But then in verses 7 to 9, you see Saul failing to fully obey the Lord. Instead of killing the king, he spares him, uh, which is the thing he was told not to do. And then he spares the best livestock and anything else that they thought looked nice. But you hear that all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. God says, destroy everything. And they say, well, uh, we'll destroy the things that we don't really like anyways. We'll destroy the things that we can't find any good use for. God says, destroy everything for my sake, but Saul leads the people in sparing the king and the best loot. Saul did not think that he really needed to obey God. He thought he knew better which parts were worth obeying or how they could be obeyed. Maybe uh, Saul said to himself, 
Well, uh, you know, this command was given a long time ago to Moses. That was a really different culture than the one we're living in now. We understand things a lot better. Uh, I'm on the right side of history. I don't really have to do this. Maybe Saul said, uh, you know, I heard a podcast. Somebody had a PhD. And they said that this command doesn't really mean destroy everybody. It means destroy some of the people. And, you know, they have a PhD. They're really smart, so therefore I don't have to do anything. Uh, Maybe Saul said something like this. Maybe he said, well, you know, I just had to find out for myself. I just couldn't live a lie anymore. I had to be authentic. God doesn't want us to be inauthentic, does he? Have you ever heard anybody say something like that? Have you ever said or thought anything like that? I have. It's pretty easy to let yourself start justifying your sin. It's easy to justify disobedience. You think, well, it's just a little bit. I mean well. I'm doing some other good things in my life. Uh, You know, who can really know what the Bible means anyways? It's pretty hard to understand. I don't know. So that's Saul. He's a lot like us. Act 1, partial obedience. Now Act 2, where you see him justifying himself for it. And this leads to his final rejection. You see it in verses 10 to 31. The word of the Lord first comes to Saul, but now the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. He says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. You hear the same thing in the last verse of the chapter, God regrets that he made Saul king. Uh, This is another hard thing in this chapter. Um, It doesn't mean that God changes his mind, literally, about Saul. It doesn't mean that God is surprised by what Saul's done or that God is remorseful over an action that he took. Verse 29, this is really interesting, uses the exact same word to say that the glory of Israel does not have regret. says that twice. God doesn't lie. He's not like us where we don't totally know the future and we're surprised by things and we come to regret things. God never changes. God never grows. God never learns anything. God never develops. He can't because he's always been what he will always be. He is the fullness of being and of goodness and of love and of glory. God does not move from being angry to being happy to being sad like we do. So it doesn't mean that God has learned some new information or that God has had some kind of new emotional experience that means that he now regrets making Saul king. This is not like the kind of experience that we have when at 3 a.m. we come to regret eating the taco that we left out on the counter all day long. This is not what's happening with Saul. It does not mean that God has come up with a new plan uh, to deal with something that he didn't foresee. It means that from our creaturely perspective, God's actions in history change. Even though in himself, in God's nature, and ultimately his plan, don't ever change. God raised up Saul for a time, but now in the face of Saul's disobedience, God is going to raise up a new king who will obey. God's answer to sin is always judgment. Because God is always himself. He's always consistent. He doesn't change or develop. God's answer to obedience is always blessing. The change is on our end. The change is never on God's end. God cannot change. And so in a very limited sense, in a human way of speaking, in the same kind of way that the Bible says that God has arms or God has a nose, in a a limited human way of speaking, God regrets making Saul king. And so God now is going to raise up somebody else in his place. 
You hear about how angry Samuel is about all of this. He prays all night long, crying out to God. And then in verse 12, you hear that Saul returns from the battle and that he set up a monument for himself. Not for God, interestingly. He thinks he's pretty hot stuff for doing what he did. He's pretty full of himself. Uh, which you can see in this chummy greeting that he gives to Samuel. He says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Just kind of like, do-do-do-do-do, here I go. I did great. Saul thinks he's done everything he should have done. He feels really good about what he just did. He doesn't have any problem with what happened. He feels fine. So Samuel calls him out on it. Uh, He says, oh, really? Well, what's this bleeding? Literally, it says voice. What's the voice of the sheep that I hear? What's the voice of this oxen? coming into my ears. Saul is confident that he's obeyed God, but Samuel says, no, I have the receipts right here. You clearly have not obeyed. Just like Adam blamed Eve in the garden, just like we like to blame everybody and everyone around us, except for ourselves, in verse 15, Saul immediately jumps to blaming the people. He blames the people for what he led them into. And he tries to put a really spiritual, positive spin on it. He says, well, they brought the livestock. They spared them to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, oddly, Saul describes God as Samuel's God. He does this a bunch of times in this chapter. It's probably underscoring the distance there is between, Samuel, I mean, between Saul and God. Uh, he blames the people, uh, but then he tries to take credit for what they did right. Uh, did you notice that? And then he gets to the end, he says, Oh, and the rest, we devoted to destruction. Samuel calls him out on it. Um, if he spoke Spanish, he would say, Cayete. Literally, it says, like, shut up. Stop talking. You did not obey. There was no higher motive here. Verse 19, he said, You pounced on the spoil. This wasn't about something spiritual that you were doing for God. This was about greed and selfishness. Uh, But then amazingly, Saul doubles down. Did you notice that? He says, I have obeyed. I did what God wanted. And then he blames the people some more. But Samuel calls him out on it again. Verse 22, he says, To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. It's not saying uh, that if you obey God, then that means you don't actually have to sacrifice for God. Ultimately, all obedience is a sacrifice of some kind. Um, The point is that sacrifice in and of itself, mere sacrifice, is no substitute for actually doing what God commands. Um, Giving up things for God, uh, great acts of virtue and sacrifice, having good intentions, making other people happy, feeling really good about what you've done, none of those give you a pass for actually listening to God. Samuel says that rebellion is as the sin of divination, trying to, you know, kind of using occult practices to figure out the future. He says presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel means that balking or shrugging at God's commands, making excuses about how you don't really have to listen to him, uh, about how you only have to do some of them, or about how it's God's job to forgive you anyways, doing those kinds of things is deadly serious, Samuel's showing us. He says it's in the same ballpark as cavorting with demons and worshiping false gods. That kind of apathy and indifference toward God is really a rejection of God. And so in the end, it will mean that like with Saul, God rejects us. 
We reject God, and God says, okay. He rejects us. But Saul now, this kind of third time, his third response, he kind of starts to own the sin at some level. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And this is really interesting. Do you notice the reason he gave? He said, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. Saul, uh, Samuel is calling Saul on not listening to the voice of the Lord. Saul says, I didn't obey God's voice because I was afraid of what the people would think about me. I was afraid of what they would do to me if I didn't give them what they wanted. And so instead of obeying God's voice, I obeyed their voice. Bob Dylan has that song, you've got to obey somebody, you've got to serve somebody. Saul chose the people. His insecurity led to his downfall. The road to hell is paved with the desire to be liked. We've got this sad illustration of Saul's plight. Uh, he frantically grabs at Samuel's robe as he turns to leave and it rips. Samuel turns around and he says, this is fitting because God is tearing the kingdom away from you. But even still, Saul is desperate to keep up appearances. Did you notice that? He begs Samuel, please, please, please go with me to church in front of everybody. Please go with me in front of the elders and in front of the people. I don't want them to know or to see how far I've fallen. I want things to still look good. This whole story is such a perfect illustration of what's wrong with us, of what we're like. We think that we're pretty great. We think that the problem is out there somewhere, somebody else's fault. Other people, they're the real sinners. Uh, But basically, I'm pretty good. I mean pretty well. Uh, Maybe, yeah, I make mistakes. But God should just kind of shrug that off. Uh, It's kind of his job anyways. Isn't he loving and kind and generous? And just like Saul, uh, we like to embellish We like to spiritualize our actions and our motives. We say things like, well, I meant well. Uh, I was just trying to show him grace. I was just being honest. Uh, We say things like this. I just didn't want to cause conflict. It just helps me to relax after a long day. This makes me a better mom. I'm just trying to give my children a better life. I'm just using my gifts. I was just trying to get more money so I could give more money away. Uh, I just wanted to make the church bigger so that more people could hear about Jesus. All these things, all these, all these little facades we like to put on to justify our disobedience. And then just like Saul, we're fixated on what other people think about us, how we're being perceived. Can you imagine if Saul had Instagram or TikTok? We like to make all kinds of excuses for our apathy and for our sin because we want to be liked because we want Christians to be respected in the wider world, because we want people to think we're loving, because we don't want our kids to be made fun of, because we don't want to make people upset, because we don't want people to leave the church. Something's really wrong with Saul. And something is really wrong with us. He and we are so quick to make excuses and exceptions for ourselves when God gives us his instructions about how best to live in this world, about how he made us to function, how he made us to relate to each other and to the things of this world. So you have partial obedience there at the beginning and in the middle you have final rejection and finally, verses 32 and 35, you have full obedience. 
come full circle. Samuel does fulfill the command that Saul did not. In this gruesome display of God's attitude toward evil and oppression, you have Samuel taking a sword and hacking the king to pieces before the Lord in God's presence. The Bible has this way of shaking you by the shoulders to kind of get you to see things the way God does instead of covering them with platitudes uh, and half-truths. And then you hear that from here on, Samuel and Saul are parting ways. It's a really sad couple of verses. On paper, Saul is going to remain the king for some time, but God is now going to be working to raise up a new king. Samuel and Saul are not going to talk to each other or work together for the rest of Saul's life. Of course, we know that at one level, the better king is going to be David. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that David is now going to become the main character. But even David is going to fail in many of the ways that Saul did. One day, David will lecherously prey upon another man's wife and then murder her husband. And then God's prophet will confront him about it with many of the same phrases that we heard here, coming from Samuel to Saul. David himself will be told, you have despised the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes. David is a great improvement on Saul in all kinds of ways. But even David fails. We need a king who always listens to God's word. We need Jesus, David's greater son. We need Jesus who, as the eternal son, always did his father's will. He said that his very food was to do the father's will. And then he takes the blessings that he receives for doing the father's will and he shares them with us. He shares the blessings of his obedience for anybody who admits their spiritual bankruptcy who sees that they deserve God's judgment, that we're really not any different from Saul, and so out of that, trusts in him. The letter to the Hebrews cites one of the Psalms that David himself wrote, Psalm 40, but says that it was ultimately speaking about Jesus. David's words really are words about David's son. Hebrews quotes these verses, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. How desperately we need Jesus, the King who delights to fully obey the voice of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, humble us uh, with this clear and serious picture of what sin is really like. Uh, help us to not hide behind masks of good intentions and half-hearted obedience and excuses and compromises. Help us to be honest about what's really wrong with us so that we can more fully see and savor the mercy of Jesus. Thank you that he has obeyed you fully. Thank you that he continues to obey you fully and that he will eternally obey you into the future. Show us that our hope is only in him. And from that, teach us to obey more and more. We pray in his name. Amen.